Good morning. I'm setting, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm setting this timer up here, but it doesn't mean anything. I just, want you to know, I just want you to know I've got it there. It makes it look good. What a blessing it is to, to share God's Word with you today. You know, most of you are probably aware that today marks the 21st anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack on our country. I remember how it took a while for the gravity that our country was actually under attack to sink in. And despite the fact that for most of my life I hardly ever remember turning on the news that there wasn't some talk of war between nations, there is coming a day when complete peace will reign. How do I know? <laughs> because our loving Heavenly Father, in His sovereignty, has said so. Even so, as I prepare today's sermon, uh, which I've entitled, Trusting God's Sovereignty, I reflect back on the events of September 11, 2001, and one word kept speaking keeps popping into my mind as I thought about those planes crashing into buildings and killing thousands of Americans. Retaliation. That's what I felt. So I looked up Scripture where retaliation is addressed in the Bible, and I arrived at Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he said. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Well, that wasn't what I was wanting to hear, so I stopped reading and decided to watch a documentary on 9-11. <laughs> I started watching this documentary, and it just kind of conjures up more feelings of anger and hatred. So I went back to reading uh, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mountain. Of course, God's Word doesn't change. In verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I thought, you know, if being perfect means having to love the people responsible for what happened in New York City in the Pentagon on 9-11, man, I don't know if I want to be that perfect. And if that's what it means to be godly, how do I deal with that? So I did what any good Christian would do. I just stopped reading the Sermon on the Mount altogether. I went to another book of the Bible. I started reading the book of Nahum. Now, let me tell you about Nahum. Nahum was a prophet who was sent to Nineveh. Now, who else do we know that went to Nineveh? Jonah, right. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent or I'm going to wipe them out. And Jonah said, well, let's just skip the first part and go ahead and destroy them because the Ninevites were like the terrorists of their world. They were feared and hated by all the surrounding nations, primarily because it's from those nations that they took most of their wealth as they pillaged and plundered the towns and villages all around. And so the consensus was that if you were going to be taken captive by the Ninevites, the best thing you could do would be just go ahead and kill yourself because of the ruthless torture techniques that they developed through the years. And so uh, God says to Jonah, Jonah, their evil has come up before me, and I want you to go and tell them to repent. And Jonah said, I don't even want them to repent. I just want you to wipe them off the planet. And you remember the story of Jonah, how he ran from God because he did hate the Ninevites, and how that didn't work out very well, so he relented. He went to Nineveh, and much to Jonah's dismay, they actually did repent. But it only lasted for a generation. And a hundred years later, God had finally had enough of the Ninevites. 
I mean, it was just one generation after another, pure evil. And so God says to Nahum, he says, Nahum, I want you to go and I want you to prophesy against the Ninevites. And I want you to go to Judah and prophesy against the Ninevites so that uh, the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. And when it comes to evil, I have my limits. And so sure enough, God gives Nahum this prophecy. This is good. Let me just share a little bit of this with you. In Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, I'm going to skip around some because this is a long book, and this prophecy is long, and you're going to get the gist of it without having to hear all of it. So here goes chapter 2, verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day that he musters them. They're ready for war. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. Hearts melt and knees tremble. All faces grow pale. Chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, that can't be good. He says, I will, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. And I thought, now that's more like it. That's what I wanted to hear when, you know, with what happened to us about 9-11. Now, some people say that you read about the God of the Old Testament, and he's cruel, and he's wiped them out and spilled their blood. And then you come over to the New Testament, God's all about love and joy, peace. You know, like, which God is it? What happened between the Old and New Testament? This is like two different gods. And for years, many of us who are Christians and believe the Old Testament, we've found it kind of difficult sometimes to defend God's cruelty and his anger and his indignation at sin <laughs> until September 11th, 2001. Suddenly, we had a firsthand experience with evil. And I got to tell you, it was kind of reassuring to me to read this and know that God may have been as or more angry than I was about what happened on 9-11. And that God is not unknown for taking matters into his own hands. And he is not a God who's afraid to punish evil. And all of a sudden, these passages like, Nineveh, uh, like Nahum come to life and it's like, wow, no more Nineveh. God had finally headed up to here with the Ninevites. Today, you can't vacation in Nineveh. It's gone. God said, I'm going to put an end to that multi-generational evil. And he sent in the Babylonians and destroyed that nation. Well, that leaves us with a little bit of a dilemma that I want to talk about this morning. And the dilemma is this. Which God is it? Is it the Old Testament God who wiped them out and spilled their blood? Or is it Jesus in the New Testament saying, when they persecute you, turn the other cheek. Don't repay evil for evil. And if they ask you for one thing, you give them more. Which one is it? People may have asked you that question. Some people will ask you that question. Or maybe you've just wondered it yourself. So I want to take a few minutes this morning and uh, kind of try and untangle this knot so that primarily I can ask the question and you can ask the question, but what about these feelings we have in the face of events like 9-11 and other evil events that have occurred and most assuredly will occur in the days ahead? Because I think we'd all agree the world's becoming more and more evil every day. And it's easy to feel anger and hatred toward people that perpetrate such acts. The natural reaction is to want to get back at them. So what do I do with these feelings? Because at the same time, I'm a Christian. And I know all about uh, love and forgiveness and all those things. So in light of this being the 21st anniversary <coughs> excuse me, of 9-11, 
I wanted to address these questions by looking at what happened right after the killing of thousands on that dark day in 2001. Almost immediately following the event, we found ourselves involved in a war that officially lasted 20 years, but as you know, we're still attached to it in some ways today. So I thought it would be appropriate to approach this in the context of war. So if you have a a bulletin this morning in your outline, I want you to look, excuse me, basically there have been three views throughout history about a Christian's involvement in war. The first view is typically called activism. And the view of activism says that Christians are duty-bound to obey the government and participate in every war for which the government enlists their support. That according to this view, because God created government and because God has placed us under the authority of the government, that if our government or if our country is involved in war, then we as Christians are duty-bound to obey the government and participate regardless of the reason for the war. The second view is probably more familiar. It's called pacifism. Now, a pacifist is someone who says that they can never support war because uh, we're all made in the image of God, and to take a human life would be to destroy someone made in God's image. And so a pacifist would say, uh, because it says both the Old and New Testament, thou shalt not kill, they say that because I'm a Christian and because of my faith in God, I could never uh, take another person's life regardless of the reason or regardless of the cause. The third view we're going to call selectivism. Now, this is a term that was coined by Dr. Norman Geisler, and there have been others who have written on this, and another phrase often associated with this view is the just war theory or the just war view, and according to this view, Christians should support their government by participating in and supporting just wars, not all wars, not no wars, but just wars. And a just war, according to someone who holds this view, is a war that was conducted in order to protect the innocent or to punish evil. So that if the government says to Christians in that country, we're going to war to protect the innocent or to punish evil, then Christians are duty-bound to obey the government and participate regardless of the reason for the, cause, for the war. Now, I think that Scripture is very, very clear both in what's illustrated and what is stated that this third view is the view that Christians should take. So I want to take a few minutes and talk about that and give you some biblical support for that. And then I want to come back at the end and answer the question, but what about all those things Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount? So first of all, let me give you some, some biblical support for this third view. Now basically there are two lines of arguments. One is what we see in the Old Testament, and secondly is what we are taught in the New Testament. The Old Testament gives us some examples of, or some illustrations of selectivism, and the New Testament actually gives us some teaching on that. So let's look at the Old Testament first. Throughout history, uh, we find God using uh, military force to punish evil and protect the innocent. Many times the nation of Israel would uh, find themselves under military presence, and uh, God would say to them, take your soldiers, go and fight, and I will be with you. In fact, I'll go before you. Many, many times God would show up in the middle of military conflict in order to protect the innocent, his people, or to uh, defeat or destroy an evil nation, or in some cases, just a wicked leader. And there are cases as well which are interesting where God would say to a king, don't even bother going to war. I'm going to do it all by myself. And there are two or three occasions where Israel's army went out to fight only to find that the enemy had been defeated in the night. In some cases, they didn't know why the enemy was dead. 
In other cases, it appeared that they'd fought amongst themselves. But many, many times, God would use military endeavors in order to protect the innocent or to punish evil. Then not only in relationship to the nation of Israel, but uh, as we just noted with Nineveh, there are several occasions where God dealt militarily with nations he didn't have a covenant with at all. He just got fed up with the evil in Nineveh. So he sent in the Babylonians, who certainly were not a godly people. He sent them in to defeat the evil that continued to spread and continued to be replicated in Nineveh generation after generation after generation. And then there's an interesting story we find in the book of Habakkuk. Now, you may not know the story of Habakkuk, but it's an interesting little story where Habakkuk is a Jewish prophet. He's in the nation of Israel, and he is so sickened by the sin of his own people that he says to God, God, when are you going to do something about the sin in the nation of Israel? It just goes on and on and on, and God, you're not doing anything about it. And so finally, God says, well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send in the Babylonians. They're going to roll in here, and they're going to destroy the nation. I'm going to punish the nation. And Habakkuk's like, well, wait, wait a minute. I know we're bad, but they're worse than we are. You're going to send a more pagan, evil nation than us to judge us? And God says, yes. And then after they come in here and roll all over you, I'm going to send yet another nation in to roll all over them uh, and, and do away with their evil. And by the end of the book, Habakkuk, it's almost like he's thinking, sorry, I ask. And you're really serious about this. And historically, all of this came true. Historically, God raises up nations through military force in order to protect the innocent or to punish evil. This was his way throughout the Old Testament. This is not a new idea. Now, that's easy to look at and read about, and it's kind of fascinating. But when we get to the New Testament, there's actually two passages of Scripture, one we're going to look at this morning, uh, where this issue is addressed specifically. So take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we're going to be looking at the first four verses. Paul here talks specifically about our responsibility to government and even talks specifically about the government's use of force and our response in relation, uh, relationship to that. Now, while you're turning, just to put this in context, it needs to be said that the Roman government was very hostile uh, to the spread of Christianity. And later on in years following, the Roman emperor, in fact, several Roman emperors, uh, they, they were just persecuted them un- unbelievably. So this wasn't just written in a la-la land where everybody's getting along. This was written at a time and in a situation where these people lived with a very unjust government uh, who was specifically critical of and antagonistic to their beliefs as Christians. And the Apostle Paul who wrote this, uh, he'd been a victim uh, of the government as he went around to spread Christianity. Now, in spite of all that, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Verse 13:1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The NIV translation says, established by God. Now, check that out. Paul says, the Roman government that has given you such a hard time was actually instituted by God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, that must have come as a shock. I mean, it looks like Rome's the enemy of God. Paul says, no. The Roman government's there because God instituted it. He didn't just allow it. He goes so far as to say he established it. Therefore, verse 2 Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, if you rebel against the government, you're rebelling against God. And there's judgment for that. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Now get this, verse 4. 
He is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, God instituted the concept of government. And then God went so far as to establish specific governments. And God has given the government the right and the privilege and the responsibility to governments to punish that which is wrong and to reward that which is right. So that if you're doing everything the government says you should do in normal times, then you'd be safe, have nothing to fear. But if you go against what the government says, the government has the right and responsibility to enforce, and the imagery here is to use the sword, to enforce its will upon those who are being governed. That God has given the government the right to defend the innocent and to punish wrongdoers. He uses the word wrath, that the government can bring down physical force and wrath on those who oppose its edicts and who oppose its will. Friends, this is why, as Christians, we need to elect government officials who value the principles of God's Word. For these are the people who will write the laws that govern us. And we need only to look to the last couple of years in some of our major cities where this principle of God's Word of protecting the innocent and punishing evil has been pushed aside. A principle that, in fact, has been successful for over 240 years in our country is now being tossed aside. And as a result, there's crime and chaos. God gives us principles to protect us, to govern us, and to prosper us. No country has been more prosperous since its inception than the United States of America. But as we move away from God's principles, we move toward destruction. Now, the implication is simply this, if you put all that together, that as believers, God has called upon us to support and be a part of and to uh, submit to the governing authorities. In our case, it's the United States of America. And the United States of America has been given by God the uh, opportunity and responsibility to uh, enforce its will with the use of force, as again signified by the imagery of the sword. And when you and I support our government and our government's decisions to use force to right wrongs and to protect the innocent and to punish evil, we are working in tandem with the will of God, for it is God who has established the government. And just as to rebel against the government would be to rebel against God, in the same way, working with and supporting our government is, in a spiritual sense, supporting our Father in heaven. Now, don't miss this. The Apostle Paul is not saying that all governments are righteous. He's not saying that all governments do everything good, and he's certainly not saying that all governments reflect the moral and ethical will of God. We know that's not true. But in God's sovereignty, he has established governments. And our responsibility as Christians is to support that which God has established. And so to rebel against the government would be to rebel against God, our Heavenly Father. So therefore, as believers, as we look at what's illustrated in the Old Testament, and as we look at the teaching in the New Testament, the message to me is very, very clear. That as we reflect back on our situation as a nation in 2001, when we're called to right or wrong, called to war, as we think about the unbelievable evil that was imposed upon us as a nation, as we think about being called upon to protect the innocent in the future and to judge and punish the evil seen not only in this nation but all over the world, then the right thing for us to do as citizens first and then as Christians is to support the call to war if and or when it is a just war as it appeared to be when we were attacked in 2001. That by being supportive of and participating in such a war is actually submissive to and participating 
with the will of God because God has established the government. Now, this view of selectivism also says you don't necessarily follow everything the government says. It's kind of tricky that when the government involves us in an unjust war or if the government were to ask me or you to do something outside the bounds of our beliefs and convictions as a Christian, then what's been modeled for us in both the Old and New Testament, what's clearly taught in Scripture, then at that point we as Christians must say no to our government. And that peaceful uh, disobedience, peaceful demonstrations are not only allowed but are encouraged in both the Old and New Testament. That the government is not our God, but that God has given government to protect us and to govern us. But whenever a particular human, uh, human government gets out of bounds, we as Christians have the responsibility and obligation not to overthrow the government, not to rebel against the government, but to face those obligations and say that as a believer, I just can't participate in that. And th- this is all throughout the Bible. You know, one of my favorite stories growing up as a child was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and you remember how King Nebuchadnezzar told those three teenage boys, you're going to have to bow down to this uh, idol I put out in the desert. I said, well, King, we can't do it. He said, well, if you don't, I'm going to burn you up. And they said, well, fire up the ovens because we're not going to do it. Now, basically, they said that, but very respectfully, what they said was, oh, King, you know, you do whatever you have to do, and we'll do whatever we have to do. And what we have to do is not uh, bow down to that image. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, well, then I'll have to burn you up. And he was furious. He was so mad, if you recall the story, he heated the ovens, had those guys heat the ovens seven times hotter than ever before. It was so hot that when they, the guards took these guys to put them in the ovens, the heat killed the guards. And yet Nebuchadnezzar's looking in there, and he's seeing these, these guys walk around. He said, we put three people in there, right? Well, I see four, and one of them looks like the son of a god. And he says, you know, those guys aren't burning. Get them out of there. And when they took them out, their clothes weren't even singed. Now, I want to read to you the response, and this will be on the screen for you, in... Uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says after he sees all this. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <clears throat> excuse me, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, listen, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. And then the king said, and I'm paraphrasing this, well, apparently that was a stupid rule. New rule. Anybody who disparages or says anything disparaging about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, not only will I tear them limb from limb, but I'm going to destroy their houses as well. That's why they did things back then. And then he gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a promotion. <laughs> but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, didn't start a revolution and start a covert operation and say, well, this is God's will and we're going to get you. They said, no, we understand your rule and you're the governing authority. But we just can't participate in that. So do whatever you need to do. In the New Testament, Peter and John were dragged in. They said, don't you preach about Jesus anymore. Listen to their response in Acts 4, 19 and 20. I think we have that for you on the screen as well. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Now, these are the religious leaders they're talking to. And he goes on and says, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're not going to start a revolution, but we have to be obedient to what God has said to do. So what's modeled for us is that in those rare occasions when a government requires of Christians something that's out of bounds of what we can do uh, with a clear conscience, 
The solution isn't to take up arms. The solution is just to say, we can't do it. And whatever the consequences are in this government that God has established, we will receive. We'll take on those consequences. And again, it's modeled on both sides. And again, let me say, let me emphasize, this is why we need to elect officials who value God's words so that our laws will reflect those values. So you put all that together, basically this is what we have. That when our government calls on us to do something, that's the call of God. Because God has established the government. Now you know what the application of this passage in Romans is? It's not go to war. The application is pay your taxes. And they're saying, yeah, but they're using all that money to build pagan temples and all that sort of stuff. Paul says, that's God's business. You pay your taxes. God has commanded us to follow the lead of our government. We take that as far as we can. But if there's ever a point in your life or my life as Christians that we're called upon or required to do something that's out of bounds for us spiritually or beyond what God has called us to do, then in those moments we simply say, can't do it. But whatever you need to do to punish me, you go right ahead. Because I trust that God, in his sovereignty, has established this government. You know, it's interesting, in the first century, when the church was being persecuted by Rome and really all over Europe, the church never formed an army. They just marched single file into those arenas where they were tortured, persecuted, and fed to lions. And as a human being and as a man in my natural state, I want to think, but God, what are you doing? But if, if, you, if you've ever read and seen what happened, the, the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs is great. It tells that the Roman soldiers were so, the people of Rome, the people of Europe, all of them, they were so overwhelmed by the peace and almost at times passivity of the Christians that it turned that nation upside down, and Rome became the hub of Christian activity in just a generation or two because that is God's way, and that's God's power. That, my friends, is trusting God's sovereignty. Now, that leads me to the more sticky question I want to try and sort out for you this morning. So the question then is this. If we as Christians have been called by God to obey the government, And if the government is ever leading us off to a war that we need to participate in because it seems to be a just war, what about all those verses about turning the other cheek and all that sort of stuff? I mean, in fact, some of those verses are actually found in the same book, the book of Romans. If you'll flip back a page where you were, or maybe look up a paragraph in Romans chapter 12, this is on your outline as well. Right before he talks about the government, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do whatever is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And my first thought is, how do I support the military if we're called to war and do that? So here's a very, very important distinction. This is critical for every Christian to understand. It's all throughout the New Testament. We're going to put this on the screen. 
Whereas God has given the government the responsibility and opportunity to use force to defend its social and civil rights, God has not given Christians the responsibility and opportunity or permission to use force to protect their spiritual rights. In other words, God's given the government the sword. And the government can use the sword to defend itself or to defend its people and defend its social and civil rights. God has not given the church or Christians the sword. We have not been called upon or given permission to use force to protect our spiritual rights. Those are two very, very different things. So you might ask, well, what if someone were to come in here this morning and attack us? I mean, do we have the right to use force to protect our church family? Well, we certainly do. Because in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution gives us the right to religious freedom under our government, which God has established. And so, as you read these passages of Scripture within context, here's the context. Whenever Jesus talked about turning the other cheek, or whenever the Apostle Paul talked about not returning evil for evil, the context is religious persecution. That if the government asks you to go to war to defend your nation, that's one thing. But if the government ever turns on you as a Christian, and says, because you're a Christian, because of certain beliefs, because of certain convictions, you can't have certain rights in society, and your taxes are going to be doubled. You can't live in certain places, and your kids can't go to certain schools. You're not going to be able to have certain jobs. If the government ever turns on you, or if people ever turn on you as Christians, we have not been given permission. In fact, it has been forbidden to use force to further our spiritual rights. National rights, yes. Spiritual rights, no. Do you see why the elections of these officials are so important? And so Jesus says to his followers, turn the other cheek. If a Roman officer wants you to go a mile, you go two miles. If somebody's going to sue you because you're a Christian, and on and on and on. And in all those contexts, the issue is persecution. And we as believers need to separate the two. And here's why. Someone breaks into your home, don't quote, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. It's not relevant. Someone breaks into your home, they've broken the law of the government. And you are to appeal and work with the government in order to protect yourself, to protect your family. We have laws giving us this right. One of those is the right to bear arms. Uh, if somebody mugs you on the street or tries to rob you on the street, this is not being persecuted as a Christian. This is uh, violating your civil rights that your government has been established by God to protect. You're to work with your government to defend yourself and to defend other people whose government-given rights have been violated. It's two different things. But if the day ever comes at your office or in your home or in your school or as an American citizen that you're persecuted by the government specifically because of your faith in God, then all bets are off. It's a whole different deal. It's a whole different set of rules because we're not allowed to use force to further our spiritual rights. Does that make sense? I mean, it comes to relief. Listen, there's an interesting little thing that happened in the life of Jesus uh, that, that's often overlooked. And actually, two incidences that seem contradictory, but actually, actually help clarify this. You remember when they came to arrest Jesus, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And all the Roman soldiers came. They had a bunch of soldiers and some of the Jewish leaders. And uh, right before they grabbed him, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, he pulls out his sword. And he just whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant. But Jesus didn't say, charge, get him, Peter. He said, no, Peter, put your sword away. This isn't the time for that. And he healed the guy's ear. Just a few days earlier, maybe a week, sometimes I have trouble with chronology. But 
Jesus was talking to these same guys, his apostles, and he says, Guys, you remember when I sent you out two by two and I didn't let you take any money? You didn't take a change of clothes. You didn't take any food. You, you didn't take anything with you. And God took care of you? He said, yeah, you know, that was kind of cool. We didn't take anything with us, and God protect us. He said, well, now it's a different day because we're going on this trip. We're all geared up, and we're taking some money with us. And then he asked a strange question. He said, we need to buy some, or made a statement. He said, we need to buy some swords. And one of the apostles said, well, we have two. He said, that's enough. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Jesus. You're telling Peter no swords, and now you're telling us to buy some swords. This is like the Old Testament, New Testament God. What happened? Nothing happened. He says, we're carrying money. People are giving us money. We have to protect and defend ourselves, and if somebody attempts to rob us, use the swords. If somebody attempts to violate our rights under Jewish law and under Roman law, use the swords. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it's a spiritual deal, and I've come to lay down my life, Put your swords away. Because the government has the right to use the sword and to instill its right among citizens to use the sword to defend themselves. But when it comes to defending our spiritual rights, it's a brand new day with a different set of rules. Is that kind of clear? You know, I I know this is a lot to take in. You see, you know what this means? I mean, if I'm reading this right, that God is just as incensed as we are when events like 9-11 occur. I mean, that's why he's provided for us a way to protect and defend ourselves when our civil rights are threatened by evil. I remember shortly after the, uh, all those folks were killed on that terrible day in 2001, a lot of people in this country were saying, is God judging America? You know, I never thought God was using that event to judge America because when I read the Bible, whenever God judged a nation, man, there was nothing left but smoke. I mean, nations that are judged by God don't rub up the military and go over and defend themselves. It's over. But could it be that God is using the United States to use its resources to spread the gospel among countries that seek to harm us? Could it be that God's plans to use the United States to judge the evil of terrorism in the world? Or maybe His plan is to use us to bring about judgment to other nations as He has done before to wipe out evil that's been going on generation after generation after generation. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I understand that. Because you see, God to you and God to me is the happy, peaceful God. You know why? Because as a nation, we have been so blessed, and up until 9-11, so distanced from the evil that other countries are so familiar with day after day after day. And now much of that evil has come to America as we have abandoned many of God's principles. Now, it's all speculation as to what God might be doing. The fact is, we have no idea. I mean, but one thing we know for sure, whatever God's plan is, will come to pass. Because through it all, as we sang, He is sovereign. How else do you explain a country with 48,000 mosques and not a single church building where persecution is most severe is, in fact, the country with the second fastest evangelical growth in the world. That's what happened in Afghanistan while our troops were there attempting to protect the innocent and punish evil. God's sovereign plan will not be undone by anything that happens on this earth. As Pastor Troy has said so many times, I love this, Troy, Jesus has already won. 
You know, Scripture tells us that evil's not fair, that despite your moral character, sin has a grip on your life. Events like 9-11 harden the truth that death can rob us at a moment's notice, and evil can strike, change the course of the world in just one tragic morning. Friends, events like 9-11 are a pointed revelation of sin. The scope of such irreversible suffering, death, and trauma clarifies that no human power can prevent, reverse, or overcome the full consequences of sin. (laughs) But God. God does not leave us in despair of these natural and specific revelations of sin. God goes on the offensive against sin and death with the promise of resurrection and life. This promise is founded in Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. At the cross, God demonstrates His power to defeat death and take on evil. That Victory and resurrection are then handed over to us by faith. 2 Corinthians 521, the Apostle Paul says it this way, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. God is willing to give you something of immeasurable worth in exchange for your worthless sin. (laughs) What a Savior. Well, as we close this morning, I'll, I'll tell you the thing that really ties all this together for me in a really a very emotional way. It's a story that many of you are par- probably at least partially familiar with. This, play- this took place in the morning that the planes crashed into the World Trade Center. It's the story of Todd Beamer. Now, Todd Beamer was a 32-year-old businessman. And you may have heard after some, it was on television several times, they had an interview with his wife, Lisa. And Lisa said during this interview that Todd was a, a Sunday school teacher at his church, that he was a man of incredible faith, and he maintained his faith throughout his life. They had two children, David and Andrew, and Lisa was pregnant with the third child. And on Flight 92 headed to Washington, when Todd realized what was happening, he tried to call his wife and instead got a GTE operator. Talked to her for 15 minutes. And in that time, he sent home messages to his wife and children that he, uh, that he loved them. And then before... Well, then he told the operator that he and some others were going to try and overtake the hijackers. And then before he hung up the phone, he asked the operator if she would just please pray with him the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Folks, I've got to tell you, I've prayed the Lord's Prayer a lot of times in my life. You probably have too. And I'm ashamed to say that there have been times where I've found myself just saying the words. Because sometimes when we memorize things, that's what we do. But I want you to do something here as we close this morning so that hopefully we can feel the impact of what it would be like to say the Lord's Prayer in a situation like that. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to try and picture this. Picture you sitting right beside Todd Beamer on that plane. What that must have been like. And you've been privy to this conversation where he's been talking to this operator. So now you're aware that this may be the last prayer you ever hear. Can you see him? Can you hear him? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, in this, in this jet plane, in my little world, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. So we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Then in the interview, Lisa said the operator told her that she heard Todd say, Help me, Jesus. And then he said, Let's roll. And a few minutes later, that plane crashed into a field, killing everybody on board, but probably saving thousands of other lives as it missed its intended destination in Washington. As I listened to that story, I did not think, how could a man who names the name of Jesus do such a thing? What I thought was, how could a man who names the name of Jesus do anything else but lay down his life for the sake of others whose lives he might be willing to save by laying down his own? And as a Christian, as a citizen, man, I was so proud. And I suspect in heaven, our Heavenly Father was even more proud. Because, you see, Todd understood that his Christianity didn't put him at odds with the use of force. That it very well may have been his Christianity that moved him to have the courage to lay down his life for the sake of so many other innocent people. Todd Beamer clearly understood and trusted the sovereignty of God. In the book of Numbers, here's how it's written, and we'll close. The Lord is slow in anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. In, in, for bounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. At least in my last thought, it's on your, on your outline. God is sovereign in all things. Do you trust him? Let's pray together.